Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Welcome back to 007 by 7 the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Ingle. And I'm Mitch Bryan, and today we're looking at minutes 70 through 77, which begin with Tanya in a negligee letting Karim into the compartment and end with Bond firmly demanding details from a very distraught Tanya. In between, Karim informs Bond that one of the Russian security men is aboard the train. Red Grant heads to the compartment where Karim has the Russian agent on ice and after Bond and Tanya have a romantic interlude, Bond discovers Karim and the agent both dead. As the train hurdles past Karim's son at the rendezvous point, Bond angrily interrogates Tanya. And today our guest is the one and only John Cork, who is an author, screenwriter, producer, and director. He wrote the civil rights drama The Long Walk Home that starts Sissy Spacek and Whoopi Goldberg and has written screenplays for many major film studios. His multimedia production company has produced multiple feature-length documentaries and over 300 short documentaries since 1999, many of them making of featurettes on classic films for DVD, Blu-ray, and digital video releases, including, I might add, the excellent documentary on Murnau, Borghese, and Fox. John has produced, directed, and written along with Bruce Civilly more than 30 documentaries for MGM releases of the James Bond films on DVD, Blu-ray, and streaming platforms. John and Bruce have written biographies of Ian Fleming, Cubby Broccoli, and Harry Saltzman, and collectively have conducted over 150 interviews with the creative teams behind the 007 films. They also wrote the beautiful golden coffee table-sized book that I'm staring at right now, James Bond, The Legacy, as well as Bond Girls Are, to, Are Forever, The Women of James Bond, with actress Miriam Dabo. And with Colin Stutz, he co-authored the James Bond Encyclopedia. Welcome, John Cork. It's, thr- it's thrilling to have you here. How are you guys doing today? We're doing great. It's just, it's just great to have you here. I I should tell everybody that you and I got to actually meet face to face a week ago, less than a week ago, when when you were in Kansas City. Um, do you want to say what you came to Kansas City to see? Uh, I just came to see that everything was up to date in Kansas City. <laughs> I had uh, a yearning to see a plane that is at the uh, Airline History Museum which is the super constellation, uh, a, a fleet plane from TWA's golden age. And of course I went to see it because it appears in the novel Diamonds Are Forever and it plays an interesting role in the novel Goldfinger as well. But not the plane that he gets sucked out the window of. That's not even in the book, is it? No, it is in the book, absolutely. But it's it's odd job that, that gets sucked out the window. And that that's a uh, BOC, BAOC, um, uh, monarch stratocruiser. I see. Okay. Well, was it in, was it impressive to walk around in that in that uh, in that plane? The great thing about that is that there are four bunks in the the uh, in the the uh, super constellation, so that people can sleep on them. And Bond and Tiffany are sleeping in those bunks when they fly out from Los Angeles to Chicago and then to New York uh, before they get on the Queen Elizabeth. 
ocean liner. So that was that was a great deal of fun to to see the uh, uh, to see those bunks in the plane and and imagine that passage, or not even imagine, pull it up on my phone and and read the passage as I'm actually looking at those bunks uh, there. And it's a it's a nice moment where Bond is is thinking he could be falling in love with Tiffany Case on there and would he be able to break through all the defenses that she's built up after her horrific childhood and working with the criminal gang and everything and so it's a nice passage and to read it in the place where it would have happened was was uh very nice for somebody who grew up loving those novels i know that you have an association with a lot of the vehicles that have and and uh hardware that has appeared in these movies is is there any any left that you haven't um you know that you want to to actually see up close and and uh, like you did with this with this like with the plane in Kansas City there are tons of them uh i think for me one of the things i would like to see someday soon is to go to texas where one of the the last remaining carver planes it, it, it exists and that's a plane that you see in goldfinger that was uh uh, set up to to shuttle uh, cars over the English Channel, and so it has this huge guppy like shape to it. The nose opens up, and they load the cars in. So you see the Aston Martin and Goldfinger's uh, Rolls Royce, uh, you know, are going to be transported over um, yeah. in those. And they're just fun planes, just weird little fun planes. Most of them have crashed over the years, uh, have, have have met ugly ends. But there's one apparently in Texas, and uh, someday I have to plan the road trip and go out there and try to see if I can I can get a, a good tour of that. But there are lots of vehicles from the the you know from the novels. I mean, the, the great thing about the novels is you know we think of Bond as a jet age hero, but those novels began before the jet age. And in fact, Bond regrets at one point that that the transatlantic travel is becoming faster and faster and. The, the elegance and sort of endurance test of it is is beginning to disappear. You know, you mentioned Tiffany Case, which uh, Diamonds Are Forever precedes from Russia with Love, and there's a reference to her. I th- I seem to remember like at the at the beginning, right? Yes, M uh, asked Bond what's going on with her, and Bond says, "Well, you don't have to worry about her anymore. She's she's flown the coop." So. So this, you know, this loose serialization from from book to book, which we've talked about how early on in the film of From Russia with Love, they mentioned Dr. No, that, that the preceding movie. And so there's a uh, there are these little tenuous things that connect the movies together. And it, it seems like right now we're probably in the most serialized series of Bond films uh, of the of the whole franchise. Um, do you have any thoughts about like how much should these films connect back to the previous film? Well, you know, it really is up to people who are not me to make those decisions. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, I think for a, a lot of folks who watch the movies, they have no idea, for example, who Mr. White was. They may have seen Casino Royale. They may have enjoyed Casino Royale. But eventually they're like, I, I don't know who this guy is. Uh, whereas... I'm not sure that's important for the films, but if you kind of know the films and and are paying a lot of attention, you see those linkages. Just as these people have no idea what the history behind Blofeld is. I I remember talking to a class at at the University of Southern California that was being taught on James Bond, 
and I asked the students there, and this was this was still this was in the early two thousands. How many of them before that class had ever seen a Bond film? And about half raised their hand. And how many of those who had seen a Bond film had ever seen a Bond film with somebody besides Pierce Brosnan? And it was just a smattering. So all of those types of, of things about linkages and, and where does the past come in and stuff like that, it's much more important to you know hardcore Bond fans than I think it is to anybody else yeah yeah and i suppose men of a certain age uh also who've grown up with these things since we were we were little kids i, I know that i my first bond experience was seeing goldfinger when i was three years old you told me that uh, you did me one better right you can remember seeing from russia with love yeah so uh you know you and i are very close to the to the same age and i actually saw from russia with love uh after you would have seen Goldfinger, it was re-released in a double bill with Dr. No. And my mother, apparently thinking it was a great idea to take a small child to a double bill movie, uh, took me to the Capri Theater in Montgomery, Alabama. And the only memory I have of seeing the film was James Bond firing the, the flare gun into the water and the water catching on fire. And I was old enough to know that water did not burn. And I asked my mother... I'm sure at a volume much to the irritation of everyone else in the movie theater, why the water was on fire. And my mother explained that James Bond had poured gasoline on it and the gasoline was burning. And I remember thinking, that's really cool. That's literally the only memory I have. And apparently I saw Dr. No the same day. Nothing stayed in it from there. All I remember from Goldfinger is the, is the hat chopping off the statue's head. So same kind of thing, you know, the, the, the incongruities that just sort of strike a little kid. That How, how can that hat cut that statue's head off, right? Yeah. So, so That's wild. Yeah, but that's, that's the impact of uh, things on a small child. Freud would have a great field day with that. Since you've done so much research and done so many interviews and made so, so many recordings of people, is there still stuff left that we haven't seen that is of value in terms of, you know, Bond history scholarship. I mean, are there are there new documentaries that are that are could still be made on the older films, or did you do you feel like you exhausted all the resources? There is a limitless quantity of stories that are out there. You know, every person who worked on these Bond films uh, has a story. Sometimes it's directly related to the films. Sometimes it just is tangentially related to the films. There's so much, you know, that that should come into play. Paul Din, for example, co-screenwriter on, on Goldfinger, very little has really been reported about his story. He was deeply involved in intelligence. Uh, the, um, uh, you know, Berkeley Mather, very little has really been reported about him. There's now, you know, been some stuff on Joanna Harwood, who is, uh, you know, so important for both Dr. No and from Russia with love, but we couldn't reach her when I, mean, we, I spoke to her on the phone, but we could not get somebody down there to interview her by the time we needed to interview her for our deadlines. You know, on all of these things, there's limitations, you know, uh, on mm -hmm. what one can do. I mean, now with podcasts, hopefully more and more people will be going out and doing more in-depth interviews with uh, some of the survivors or some of the people who know the, the history. When we did the documentary on the titles, we didn't know 
anything about Robert Brown John. We kept asking people, everyone, who's Robert Brown John? Who's Robert Brown John? We didn't ask the right people. Turns out Robert Brown John's story is fabulous. He was very important in the design world. And we just had to skim over him. Uh, he, he worked um, uh, on some of the most important advertising campaigns of the 1960s and had a remarkable life and a remarkable impact. I read somewhere that David Watkin was involved with Brown John on one of the titles, and I'm not sure wh- whether it was From Russia With Love or Goldfinger. I know that Frank Tidy did did some work on it, but did you ever hear anything about whether David Watkin was like a, an operator or something? Yes, I, th- I think there's uh, um, some material about David Watkin being involved. It's just amazing, all the people that are kind of tangentially in this Bond orbit. It's, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, you know, they, the, the thing that great producers do is they build a great team. And what Cubby and Harry managed to do was build great teams of creative people that they could, they could trust to turn out fantastic work. And those people didn't always get along. Uh, like with any group of people, there are always conflicts, but uh, they, they came together to make something that was greater than any of them did individually anywhere else. When they worked on those Bond films, they created uh, a level of pop culture entertainment that was staggering, and it survived changes in actors, changes in directors, all sorts of changes along the way. You got to know Peter Hunt a little bit towards the end of his life, didn't you? I got to know Peter Hunt pretty well, yes. Uh, anything you want to share about that relationship? Or, or, I mean, his contribution, we talk about it all the time. He's just so important to how these films felt. He was not a great director. He was one of the greatest editors of all time. And that attempt to move to director, and we can love... On Her Majesty's Secret Service, but you can look at the body of his work as a director and you can say, well, you know, Death Hunt, which they put a lot of money into when it came out, or you can look at at, uh, Gold, or you can look at um, Shout at the Devil. You you can look at all of these movies and and you can say, okay, you know, in the hands of of a really great director, um, the miniseries Pompeii, for example, that he worked on, you could, you could say, well, really great director would have, would have lifted this up somehow. And Peter Hunt was not able to do that. So by the time I knew him, I think his self-confidence had taken quite a beating uh, on there. And so it was a real pleasure when there would be screenings of Bond films around Los Angeles that he had worked on. I would call him up and say, hey, I'm going to get a group of friends together. We're going to go watch this movie. Uh, Why don't we go to dinner with you first or dinner with you after? And so he would sit around and and he would just glow talking about these things and everything. And I remember sitting in a theater in Westwood uh, with him and, and he's sitting in the back with me. And he's doing the thing that's so incredibly rude. He's talking throughout the entire film to me. And he's giving me like a personal audio commentary about what's going on in the film. You know, very quietly into my ear, yeah. hopefully not disturbing everybody else. 
but and you know and, and I would call the theater up and they would introduce him beforehand maybe say a few words so it was it was a great deal of fun to get to know him at that stage of his life and and he was uh, a, a very warm personable person and uh, I was proud to call him a friend well let's jump into these minutes and uh, start with this um, lovely shot of Tanya's feet and this uh, this first of the compartment scenes, it, it struck me that this isn't the first seven minutes that we've had that take place entirely on the train, and we're going to be in in the, on the train for like two more sequences of about of seven minutes, and this seven minutes has a kind of beautiful beginning, middle, and end to it. I mean, it ha- it, it it really goes emotionally all from you know the very best to the, to the very worst uh, in terms of of what these characters are feeling. Uh, I did notice that uh, Karim says, you know, let's go talk about that drink, kind of wink, wink. And I get the sense already that they're keeping Tanya a little bit out of the mix. I don't know if that struck you that way or not. Um, for me, I mean, it's it, what we know from before these seven minutes is, of course, is that, that Karim has, has continually said to Bond, this is a trap. Don't be an idiot. Don't get caught up with this woman because she is set up here to kill you. And in fact, this, this story was inspired by a, a real story um, of a U.S. naval attache who was killed in a honey trap situation on the Orient Express and his body was found in the, the, one of the tunnels uh, thrown from the train uh, in 1950. Eugene Carp is his name. And so, you know, Fleming and the screenwriters all played into that. This is a trap. Everybody knows it's a trap. Kronstein says at the beginning, this is a trap. So when Karim is trying to pull Bond away and separate Bond a little bit from Tanya, he's doing this because he knows that that Bond's not necessarily thinking with the big head here uh, all the time. So, so yes, it's, it's a, it's a very, um, the, the great thing about these seven minutes and, and, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and admit, I asked to be on these seven minutes. And the reason I asked to be on these seven minutes is because this is where, from Russia with Love, these seven minutes is where it becomes a great film. This is the turning point in the story. It is a fairly conventional cat and mouse film there. The performances are all where they are. They are at a very particular level at this point. And this is where the point where the audience goes, I have no freaking idea what's going to happen next. And that happens in these seven minutes. Because we know more than everybody at this point, right? Sorry? We're ahead of everybody. We are until these seven minutes. Right. So we know Kronstein has explained the whole plot. We know that, that Red Grant has been sent out specifically to... to make sure that everybody gets on the train with the Lecter decoder and that Spectre is going to end up with the Lecter decoder. We know that Tanya thinks she's working for her you know, mother Russia, but she is in fact working for Spectre and has no clue. So all of that has been put into place. And we know that Bond is in the dark. Bond does not know that Spectre exists. He doesn't have any clue, and he hasn't found it out by the end of these seven minutes. And so what we see is Bond and Karim thinking that they are playing a game with the Russians, and they are playing it just fine, and 
Then Karim goes and introduces him to the security man who got on the train. And uh, that's a brilliant, wonderful scene because you see the cockiness and confidence of Karim Bey. You see him go in there. I've had a particularly interesting life. Would you like to hear about it? Mm. And the audience laughs because yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like the gentleman's torture, you know. The audience is, is right there with us. These are our guys. They've got this under control. I was struck by some foreshadowing in that moment, too, because Karim says, uh, Istanbul will never be the same without you, James. And it's, it's this kind of hearty farewell without either one of them realizing that it really and truly is the last time that they're going to talk to each other. Yeah, the final dialogue uh, polishes that went into this script, I think, are, are fabulous, absolutely fabulous, particularly with the, the way that they imbued Bond and Karim with, with this great sense of masculine confidence and, and grace within their language. You don't see any of the doubt or anxiety or any of that sort of stuff appearing with either one of these characters until you hit these seven minutes. And basically, you don't see it with Karim at all. I mean, his, mm-hmm. his, big, you know, his one big moment of, of surprise is you know, when he sees Krolinko, uh it, it, through the periscope at the embassy. But other than that, these guys, they are in their element. This is their job. They are great at this job. They are not looking around or scattered or anything like that. They're like, we've got this. And the audience believes they've got this. There's some, a couple of nice little editorial things that occur. Speaking of Peter Hunt again, uh, and this can lead us into the Red Grant moment that we're coming up on. But there's a nice little when they say, well, I'm going to introduce you to Benz is on the train. I'm going to introduce you to him. They walk down the corridor there and we hold just long enough to register the porter in the hallway, correct? And we cut to Ben's looking out the window, knock, knock, knock. Even though we know that Karim and Bond are going to see Ben's, we're sold just enough on the fact that this is the porter knocking on the door that I still find it just slightly surprising when he opens the door and you see the gun. And I think it's just a shrewd little bit of editing there. And we get something similar here in a moment with Red, but I'll point that out when we get to it. But I just, you know, nice little bit of, of editing just to throw you off just enough that you get a little, like, pleasure out of that moment when you see the gun and it's not uh, coming down Broad Street. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think the other than Honor Majesty's Secret Service, this film is more Peter Hunt's film than any other Bond film. And the reason for that is production was completely chaotic. You know, they have uh, Pedro Armendariz uh, um, is dying they have to shoot his stuff very rapidly the script is not in good shape so the entire beginning gets reordered uh, so that it makes better sense Uh, and that's something that's done in the editing room not on the script page Uh, they have problems with as as you know terence young would say ah well you know as somebody said during a screening you know like they're just that that guy that is in this scene he was he got killed in an earlier scene. Uh, yeah. You have a, a, a lot of things that are going on there that, that had to be, as Peter Hunt said, he would fight with the film. And he would 
you know, cut over and over again. And that work print that he would cut with, because you were cutting with, with physical film at that time, no digital copies or anything like that. So you literally cut the film, you would uh, tape the film together, and if you had to, to recut it, you, you would reprint a reel or you would reprint a take, and or you would just keep cutting it and, and working with it over and over again to make it work. And so Peter Hunt fought and fought to get that pacing right for so much of the material there. And, and fortunately, he was working with a director, Terrence Young, who knew how to get the hero shot in every single scene. He knew one of his main jobs was going to be to make Sean Connery look great. One of his main jobs was going to be to make Robert Shaw look menacing, to make uh, Tatiana, uh, um, uh, Daniela Bianchi, uh, to make her look sexy. And, and, you know, her performance is is good, but she was not good vocally. So she's completely dubbed by Barbara Jefferts throughout the film. And so you're, you're cutting not with that dubbed performance. You're cutting with her audio that everyone on the film, except maybe Daniela, knew that that wasn't going to be the voice they were going to use. And her English was terrible. The economy of Terrence Young never ceases to amaze me, in both economy and confidence. We see that gun, and we know it's going to be in James Bond's hand, but they make you wait to see Bond's face because the emphasis is on the gun and the backing up and the movement, you know, so that then when you do cut to Bond, he looks fabulous, and it's it's like you're rewarded. It's this really interesting kind of game or dance that the the editor and the director are playing with the audience in terms of what what we're going to show you what we're not going to show you but we're never going to cheat you and we're going to give you what you want eventually and it's it's really an amazing amazing duo yeah terrence hated making shot lists so he would show up on the set and nobody would know where the camera was going to be or how much coverage would be gotten and everything and peter hunt was constantly going back to terrence and saying i need this shot you've got to go back and get this shot and sometimes Terrence would say to Peter, oh, you go get that. And he would, you know, there would be a break where they're lighting and they, they would take the cameraman over. And when they were shooting after the lighting had been done, you know, Peter would be using the lighting crew and the camera to set something up to, to get interim shots to, to fill stuff in that he needed. So it was a it was a constant give and take between the two of them. And Terrence liked that. He liked that Peter had his back. And Peter liked that Terrence was some, a director he could go to and say, I need this shot. And Terrence wouldn't say, oh, you're a bloody fool. You're not going to get the shot. Cut it the way I shot it. Uh, let's talk about Red Grant's appearance. Right. Like the last time we saw him, he was hanging out the side of the, tr- the, the rail car and that, that fast zoom to reveal him. Yeah, which is a fantastic shot. I, it's, yeah. it's one of my favorite shots in the film, quite frankly. Yeah, it's an amazing button to a really long and elaborate sequence. It's great. Yeah, it's it's my favorite shot is the one that comes after these seven minutes of Bond walking on the train platform. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that's really sweet. Yeah, which is uh, y'all will get to talk about with some in the next episode. John, did, John Engel, did you say something? Did you have something to say about this Red Grant appearance? Well, well, first we should talk about Bond's reaction to Grant's back. Presumably he sees him from behind, right? As he walks by and he definitely notices him. He clocks him. He he kind of gives even almost a perceptible head cock like, hmm. Like he the, he knows something's up. It's a it's a strange moment to me because it feels like 
uh, he should be on high alert uh, here, but he kind of just goes hmm, and walks on. And my my first thought was gloves, James. Like, <laughs> if you see gloves, you got to like figure something's wrong here. Uh, but do you, don't you? Do you guys feel that he sees him? Because Mitch, I think that you had a question about that, but I feel like it's pretty clear he sees him and no, and notices him, but doesn't seem to register that it's trouble. I'm not sure, John. What do you yeah. think? I think that James Bond, as a character, looks at anyone he thinks would be a formidable opponent, someone that he looks at and thinks, "I'm not sure I could take this guy." <sighs> like a like a boxer sizes him up <laughs> is that what you mean yeah that that i don't know that he was thinking oh this could be one of the enemy this guy could be a problem right. or anything like that he just looks at him and thinks well that that's a guy i'm not sure i could win that fight right yeah he seems to be impressed like i can't tell what the facial expression is but it almost is like a hmm that's an interesting guy right there that's uh maybe that is the expression is yeah, I might want to steer clear of this guy uh, if, if I ever were to run into him, which, you know, obviously he's going to find out soon enough. But uh, then the editorial note I had was we get the reveal. So Bond walks on, Red Grant turns, we're like, there he is. And he's so he's coming in the direction that Bond just came from. And then we cut to Tanya in the in the um, compartment, you know, yeah. in the compartment. And I, my brain immediately says, Red, she's in trouble. Like, just for that split second, I'm like, Red Grant walking towards us, even though if I got my geography straight in my head, I'd realize, oh, Bond's going to her. But nevertheless, when I when I hear, she hears that knock on the door, I think she's in trouble for just a second. And it's a nice relief when Bond walks in the door, even though it's, uh, it's a short-lived relief, uh, uh, obviously. It's, she is kind of in trouble. But uh, yeah, it's just this nice little beats that are thrown in here to throw us off just a little bit. Uh, that are you know just part of the ride. It's just like a little part of the ride in these in these little moments. So, have we talked about the uh, Bond and, and Tanya and the negligee? Well, this is a new one. Yeah, this right? is a different negligee. Right? This is, our blue, this is the it's, this is the blue number. I hear it's charming. I hear that's the correct way to describe it. Is charming <laughs> uh, as it's described multiple times. But yeah. Uh, we, we, yeah, we talked about the previous negligee last week. So what do we, do we have something specific about this one? Well, the thing that I liked about it is that there's the specific cultural reference when she says, uh, I wear this in Piccadilly Circus. And he says, no, you won't. They've passed new laws there, which is a specific temporal reference that they're making in the film, which they make throughout the early films. These very specific, you know, the laser beam is a new type of light. You know, this is... You know, these things are saying, like, we're right on the cutting edge. We are a film that you can watch, and it's, and we're, we're talking about things that are happening right now. Uh, they're not thinking about these films as being timeless. They are very much of a point in time. And then I also... Uh, so what's going on in Piccadilly right now? Right now, or you mean right then? No, I mean, right then. Yeah, back then. What was yeah, that reference to? they passed some public decency laws, the UK. So... Yeah, that's that's basically all that it was. That... Were the skirts getting short already? Are we? Well, as you see, they're just below the knee. But as far as like, oh, were the fashion trends the the motivation for this law? No, I think I think more the uh, the windmill theater and and things like this that had uh, nude shows, um, and there was a a 
you know, a desire to hold on to sort of some some 50s uh, morality there as the, the pressure of the swinging 60s was beginning to hit in the UK. That's great. Yeah, so, but I also like after that when they, they are resting in, uh, in the compartment and they're both fully dressed, but that the language of cinema at the time was if the woman is laying down with the guy smoking a cigarette, that means they've just had sex. Plus, we've cut to the churning wheels of the of the <laughs> train with no music, and then a dissolve from that to the the board above their heads and the tilt down reveal. So there is still some of that old fashioned production code code. You know, this means that going on here, which is great. Yeah, yeah it's fun. It's funny how trains mean sex in so many different ways. I don't know why that <laughs> is, because we get it twice in North by Northwest, right? We get the kind of pinging yeah. out the window of the train, which yes. is pretty innocuous, but somehow still means you sex. You know what it means, yeah. But then we get the really, really overt ending, uh, you know, going into the tunnel. But somehow then the chugging of the... of the. <laughs> Sorry for that gesture. And last week we oh, talked weird. about I the phallic symbol. On the pre- <laughs> they've already done it once because they've they've gone to the train with the big tower. And then so right. they're having... Yeah, so they're they're having another... another Trist right here. Right. Yeah. I, the thing that I like, though, is, is just that, that language of smoking after sex, which, you know, very few people smoke anymore. So, you know, not, not, uh, uh, not something that we need to, that, that a lot of people might even catch these days. I mean, they would, and you see the characters, they're both fully clothed, they clearly have not stripped their clothes off, the hair isn't messed up or anything like that, but you still get it and understand it. And it's an interesting economy of, of uh, filmmaking that was just a trope of the era. Mm-hmm. And it's an amazing single take. This scene is just amazingly choreographed with them getting up, with Bond going over, with him opening the window, with her coming in, with them switching positions so we get to look at her with her room. You know, I mean, it's just, again, it's Terrence Young at his very best with blocking actors. He, he really had a gift for these amazing single takes with with no cuts where you don't even realize there's no cuts because the shot is constantly changing before your eyes yes and that's that's certainly something that i think a lot of directors had tried to take from hitchcock because of course you know the there's always the time pressure when you're making a movie and what used to happen of course way back in the day and certainly happened in the b movies for quite some time is where somebody would shoot a scene just like it was on a stage in a play yeah, you would see them, you know, foot to head, and the whole thing would take place. And you know, Alfred Hitchcock was one of the directors who really sort of brought the idea that you could not have to move the camera even very much, which you could do in the silent era, but in the sound era, much harder to move that camera equipment very far, and and with a dialogue scene, and you could still continue to change that frame continue with just a pan and maybe a very short track or boom make that frame remain interesting and we have to talk about the fact that he smacks her on the bottom sure uh, and she call and she does call him on it which we will give her some some credit for that i just watched grand hotel last night and there's a scene with john barrymore and joan crawford where they've been flirting and they just make a date to go dancing the next night and she turns around to go have her meeting with Wallace Berry, and John Barrymore gives her a pat on the ass. So um, I guess this is a, I don't know, a long-standing cinematic tradition that we're dealing with here. 
I think so. I mean, certainly, certainly the infantilization of women is something that uh, happened in almost every film you're going to ever see from these from from this era uh, and before. It was part of society on that end. Now these are two people who have been intimate and are intimate. And, uh, uh, you know, but she comes from Russia. And Russia promoted itself as the idea of being an egalitarian uh, um, society, that women had just as much rights as men. It was one of the things, that, a cudgel they used against the West, was that, you know, you are, you're denying uh, um, women their agency and their, their, their uh, full rights and everything. So when she says there are some, you know, traditions that are going to have to change, uh, you know, that comes from a place of, of the cultural character at the time. And then we go to another train shot. But this one means something else, because this one, this is, a, this is clearly a transitional train shot, and we've got a, a beautiful, sh very short passage from the score that plays, that, so, it's, so it feels very different than the chugging wheels of the previous scene, which had no beautiful John Barry score underneath it. And it just functions as, a, as a, a really simple transitional device. And now we come back to them and they're, um, they're dressed and getting ready to go to dinner. And, and uh, this scene really interests me f for the reason that, I remember hearing that interview, an interview with Richard Maybaum where he talks about letting the balloon go up. And the idea that, in a way, this moment now that we're coming upon before they go off, supposedly, to dinner, uh, is the very best it's going to be between these two. The, the balloon is going up as high as Richard Maybaum can get it to go before he starts to pull everything down. And I, I think, again, it's one of those moments where we're on the ride and we don't realize what, what's happening to us. But the second time you see the movie, you really see these calibrations. And, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's the best moment they'll ever have. Yeah, there's a there's a tradition in film. If you see a scene where everybody's happy, if there's a moment in a movie where everybody's happy, and it's not the very very end of the movie, tragedy is about to occur, and that's what this scene is. John Ingle, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I mean, we if we're going to get on out into the corridor now. Um, on the subject of the infantilization of women, kind of get right back to it really quickly with the porter, you know, urgently arriving, saying there's a terrible accident. Bond's face grows like extremely worried. Oh no, he knows the worst uh, is, is very possible. She's wondering if the, if they're still going to have tea. <laughs> it really bothers me. I, that beat just. Come on, any human being is going to be concerned about the situation, not go, what, no tea? It's like, what in the world is that line? It, i got to say, it really bothers me. I want her so badly to just say, be worried, too. Why wouldn't she be? She knows them, too. I mean, they just met, but at least you'd have some concern for a human who's just been declared as having a horrible accident. I don't know. Uh, but So anyway, right back on the train again with the infantilization of women. Yeah, I mean that's certainly that's certainly the case, and and it is, uh, you know, the idea certainly there is to portray her as having fallen in love with Bond, and that that's her sole focus uh, uh, on things. But it, it's it's not it's not the best moment in the screenplay. No, <laughs> I mean it's 
you can get, get that all across and still have her be a human being. being. You, you know, know, like she doesn't have to be. Make me believe she's fallen in love with Bond. When I see a moment like this or hear a line like this, I don't believe the character's real anymore, basically. It just completely took me out of her character. So, yeah, it would have been nice to balance that a little bit. Fine, if you want her sole focus to be Bond, that's one thing, but she can't take one tiny break from that to be concerned for another human being. I don't know. And he's still trusting her with the lector, though, which is pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, she goes back into the room with with the device. Uh, True. There's still some trust, I guess. Well, this next moment, uh, as we come into the the compartment to reveal Benz and and carry him dead, again, magnificent direction by Terrence Young because we see Bond looking. We don't get to see what he's looking at, and instead of a traditional shot reverse shot. He just gently draws the camera back with a slight tilt, and the whole thing is revealed in this amazing tableau. It's one of like you could—that's a great frame grab. I don't, you know, I don't know whether it, it, you, it should have been on a lobby card. That's how good it is. Well, one of the great things about that is that in the novel, Fleming describes it—the the the death struggle scene that's been set up between Karim and 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 the security man, he describes it as seeming like something out of a film, that it was all posed. And, you know, when you're a film director and you now have to make a film of that, how do you make that look? And I, th- I think it's great that Terrence Young decided not to make it look too staged, not to sort of like, oh, he made it look as natural as he could as a filmmaker. And... Therefore, it's genuine as looking like it's in a film because it is in a film. And, and that's, that's something that I, I enjoy in looking at that scene and the way it's set up. Now, what happens here is it diverges from the novel. In this scene, you know, Terrence Young and the screenwriters are like, oh, no. We're, in the novel, there's all of this business of having to get Karen's body off the train. We have to deal with that. Uh, Fleming describes... Uh, um, Tanya watching Bond going back and forth and talking to various officials and everything as she's in the compartment and fretting as they've stopped uh, at the station. And instead, we have this great moment that, again, is this insider thing. Bond saying, we need to keep this secret. And the porter like, it will be difficult. And Bond rolling his eyes, pulling the money out, and peeling off some bills for the porter and saying, Karim had many friends. They will also reward you handsomely. And the, the, uh, that sort of insider moment, that moment that Bond knows exactly how this game is played. He knows in any culture, anywhere, how to deal with these people. Again, it's a great sense that, okay, James Bond is still in charge. Even among, you know, with this tragedy before him, with his friend dead, we don't have to see him get weepy-eyed. We don't have to see him, you know, we see him pick up the, the cigarette holder and sort of roll it around in his hands as, as some little sort of talisman memento. But we don't see any real emotionality there. And that's, that's I think, a, a great direction as far as the acting goes, regardless of where the camera's going to be placed. And, and by the way, you know, we should give Ted Moore a lot of credit here. We talk about Terrence Young's direction. The cinematographer, Ted Moore, 
was very instrumental in exactly what the shot choices were going to be. Terrence was, was uh, you know, he would go to Ted Moore and say, how do we do all this in one shot? You know, mm-hmm. you know how to, I don't, I, I've squandered my day. How do I get this without having to get six shots? We don't have time for six setups. And so Ted Moore was very good with that stuff as well. I also think the performance by Connery in this moment, there is such contempt in his in his face, not overplayed, but he he is really not happy about this is the way the world works. You got to bribe people to do the right thing, to help me out, to help my cause. And I just think it's it's a, an amazing kind of nonverbal um, contempt that gets communicated in, in this moment. Yeah, I, I think it is as well. But again, it's the right thing for him. Oh, yeah, totally. For the porter, the right thing is you've got to report the death and get a body off the train. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you, you've, you've only got a few hours before things start going pretty freaking sideways with a dead body. So, you know, you want to get them to a morgue. That's what you want to do. Officials should be investigating, you know, the assumption that these two men killed themselves. Bond knows immediately that is not likely the case. He sums that up immediately. So when he's having contempt for the porter, he's also, you know, when he's saying we need to keep this secret, he is saying this because he needs to resolve this problem. He needs to find out what really happened before bumbling policemen come on and start trying to figure it out and are closing this case. So everything that's happening on his face is now going ahead of what the audience is certain about. And that's building up to the next scene. Do we move on to the next scene? Yeah. Okay. Well, here we go. This is Go John Go. I know you've talked a little bit about this on the commentary track and um you have I th- a beautiful assessment of this. I mean the, the the emotions in this scene are are wide ranging. Well, the first thing to to say is, you know, this scene contains uh, a moment of violence against women. Uh, Connery, and we should probably talk about it, you know, Connery hits Tatiana. And and, uh, when he hits her, it's something that we should acknowledge has a long history and precedent in cinema to have happen. You know, all the way back from... Uh, the sort of Jean Harlow, uh, blonde with the the, the black eye um, type of imagery that was mm-hmm. considered so sort of sexy in its own way in, in the late 1920s, early 1930s, going all the way to uh, James Cagney shoving a grapefruit into a face. And then this other sort of infantilization violence uh, um, of Spencer Tracy spanking uh, um, Catherine Hepburn or John Wayne uh, uh, dragging uh, Maureen O'Hara across the the dirt in Ireland and the quiet man to Elvis Presley spanking a, a, a young girl, a young woman teenager who's been flirting with him in Blue Hawaii. So there's this whole tradition that's going on, and particularly in these detective films, uh, uh, 
there was uh, noir movies, these things where Humphrey Bogart would be, you know, slapping a woman or something like that. You know, you've got to either stop being hysterical or I need the information out of you. So this entire, this moment takes place in this entire universe where the depictions of violence against women in cinema is completely accepted. I've never read an essay contemporaneous to any of these films that objected to this. And in fact, things like The Quiet Man uh, were, were lauded as, as incredibly romantic films by women. You know, uh, Taming of the Shrew was, was restaged over and over again um, on this. So... Our attitudes about this have shifted dramatically since this film came out. Connery famously talked in his Playboy interview uh, when he was making Thunderball that it was okay to hit a woman with an open-handed slap if she was hysterical or something like this and defended that remark when he was interviewed by Barbara Walters in the 1980s. Uh, and, and, you know, there was a lot more pushback on it in the 19. 80s when he made that remark to Barbara Walters, um, but uh, in the late 1980s, but uh, only a little pushback in the 1960s when he talked about this this violence happening in real life. So this scene takes place within the context of this being incredibly acceptable, and I think it's important to note that to begin with. Yeah. That said. That said. So uh, for me, this is the moment where Sean Connery ceases to become a leading man in the Bond movies and he shows that he's a great actor. This is where he becomes a star, where any director, say Alfred Hitchcock for example, can, can look at him and say, this actor can handle any part I can throw him. When the compartment door opens, and he looks and you see him trying to control that anger. You hear the contempt in his voice when he starts asking Tanya about, you know, when he says to her, doesn't start asking her, he announces, Kerm's dead. And she's like, I, I don't know anything about this or whatever. And then he, he steps forward and you hear the irritation rising within him. You see this compartmentalized level of emotion that's going on before he finally loses it and he hits her. And then we go to her and we get her long explanation about what, you know, saying, I can't tell you anything. When we get to London, I can tell you all of this stuff. And it's it's a beautiful hair and makeup do a great job with that close-up of her. Uh, again, she's somebody who didn't have great command of the English language. Her face reads a lot. But the way they have the hair strung across her face after she's been hit shows that sort of like crack within her that those dual loyalties that she's fighting with and is going to have to be fighting with the entire film uh, on there. It's, it's, it's a, a wonderful close-up, and it's, it's one of the great close-ups on her in that film. But when you go back to Connery and he realizes he could beat her to a pulp and she would never say anything, and he realizes he has been played, he is a pawn in somebody else's game. All of his confidence and everything like that. 
all of his desire for her, his desire for the lector, everything like that, he knows he is lost and alone and nobody has his back. And the look on his face to get that without showing any of that lack of arrogance that Bond has to have as a character, that way that he just, he, you, you see it all internal. He doesn't do any big facial expressions or whatever. You see that tension within. Uh, there was a cinematographer, Roy Wagner, who said to me once that, uh, you know, he'd been on the set with people like Spencer Tracy and, and, and other great actors, and he said, you'd be just standing a little off the camera, and you'd go like, there was nothing there. He missed the moment. He didn't get it. And then you would see the dailies, and you would see what they were doing with just the teeniest little movement of their 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 eyebrows or their the tension within and how much we as humans can weed that on other humans faces and Connery does that in that moment and when he sort of dismissively pushes her over and and she's like going I love you James I love you it's true and he pushes her over and it's like it doesn't matter whether she loves him or not she's a pawn too Nobody knows what's going on except for the puppet masters. And he is just a puppet at that point. And he's got to figure out how to cut those strings. And all of that is right there. And that scene to me is the one where Connery takes Bond and he's, he goes beyond the performance of Bond as a character and, and imbues it with some level of humanity. And I think it's the reason that we look at From Russia With Love more than any other Bond film and say it is the one that feels the most real to us. It's not real at all. It's got mm -hmm. all of these hugely fantastical elements. The plot is, is you know, grandiose on so many levels. It's, it's got, you know, the absurdity of, of this white cat that seems to be looking at all the characters and... and, and doing the speaking for Blofeld or whatever. It's got this, you know, Rosa Klebb is so much of a larger-than-life character. Donald Grant and the black gloves and the, the Garrett Wire and the watch and all of these things. None of that is particularly realistic or anything like that. The idea of this helicopter chase and boat chase at the end, they're wonderful to watch, but they're eye candy. They're not realistic. They're not gritty. It's this moment. This particular scene, the way Connery plays that moment where he hits Tatiana and he realizes that he can't control what's going on, that he is lost, that's where we, we attach ourselves emotionally to this character because we've all felt that. We've all walked into some room somewhere where we thought we knew what was going on, that, that it doesn't matter what it is, and we've realized, oh no, I have misread this situation drastically. And he gives us that right then, right there. And that, that performance with no words where he ever says that. Not a moment where he ever states that. It's not in the dialogue anywhere. That's where we link to that character. And it remains probably the high point for that kind of emotional vulner vulnerability and on, on Bond's part for at least for I don't know I can't think of another movie where he's so much happens so in such a short period of time and and is demonstrated by an actor the way that Connery does the line the way he delivers the line you know, he's 
sits down, he's resigned to everything that you just said. We get, have all that. And he says, look, maybe they didn't tell you everything, but you guys, I guess this is where we end the minutes is exactly on this point. Maybe they didn't tell you everything, but you got to tell me everything you know right now. There's so much you can read in the way he delivers that line. I feel slightly relieved by the tone of his voice. I, I read just a little bit of regret for what he just did. There's definitely a little bit of sympathy for her there in the way he delivers the first part of the line. But you're right. It's it's like, but we're, we have to get back to business. We're now we're, like you said, nobody has his back, but they are in it together. They're both pawns. Now they're going to have to figure out how to get out of this. And he's going to need what she knows to do it. And so he's back to business, but he's not the boisterous, confident bond that we see most of the time. There's something real about the situation and it, and it puts us in his shoes. Like, not often are we in Bond's shoes. Like I never really feel like, hey, I'm I'm really walking side by side with this guy. It's not the point of James Bond most of the time. But this uh, in this moment it is, and it and you're right. It it hits you different. Yeah, and that that moment where he says, you know, says to her, you know, you may not ever everything, but you know, I need to know what you know. That moment, she can't tell him. She will not tell him. And he, you know, that, that to me is, you know, he, his choice to save her after that and not sacrifice her. He has the lector. He never has to go back for her. She's drugged. She's slowing him down. We're talking about all the stuff that comes later in the film, but everybody's watched the film. Now, all of that stuff, that humanity that you hear in his voice, that regret for having lost his temper because it was useless. It was wasted violence. Bond is not somebody who wastes anything. He has an economy mm. of movement. He has an economy of wit. He has an economy of, of everything that goes about him. He's not somebody who adorns himself with lots of jewelry. He, he is not somebody who should be flashy in any way. Just incredibly well-dressed and well-tailored. You know, his car is battleship gray. You know, or it's it's the roadster green from the the Bentleys in the novels, but it, it's not like he's going out and you know it's gunmetal cigarette case that he has, not a, a a gold cigarette case. He doesn't wear a gold watch. Um, he just wears the best, and that sense of economy also goes on to how he interacts with violence. And even though he's a character who has a license to kill that license to kill is not a license to just senselessly beat women or torture people or do things like that that are unnecessary. And, and we see that sense of humanity that, that John pointed out so eloquently there, you know, that comes through in that line, that, that sense of regret, that sense of like, I have lost control of myself. And that reflects the larger sense that he is no longer in control of this situation. Can you think of other Bond films where you f have that kind of feeling for, for Bond as a character? I mean, I'm, I'm just curious, like, does every Bond at least have one moment where we feel some of that kind of vulnerability? There is, I think there's some great moments for all of the actors that play Bond. I think probably the closest to this is the torture scene in the 2006 Casino Royale where Daniel Craig is, is, is there and he's being beaten and he's still controlling the scene. And, he, and, and he's so good in the scene, I think a lot of people miss this moment, but there's a moment in there 
where he basically says to, to Lashif that, you know, you, you're going to end up dead in this. You know, that nobody's going to have any sympathy. And he says, that's where you're wrong. Because if everything continues to go pear-shaped, I'm doing my own version of the dialogue here. He says, you know, I, what's going to happen is I will go to your side and they will, they will treat me, you know, pay me handsomely for what I know. I'm going to be fine. That's the big picture. And, and Craig's bond, you see him sort of sink down in regret, knowing that what he's trying to protect, the secrets he's trying to protect there, that's what he's paid to do. And it's not going to make a dime's worth of difference at the end of the day. Well, that is a beautiful way to conclude these minutes, the discussion of this. Uh, I'm so glad that you singled these ones out, you know? I mean, it's it's great to have you on the show. It's even better for you to have said, I want those minutes, because because it's just, it's a it's a thrill, you know, hearing hearing you talk about this stuff. Well, thank you. I, I you know, again, I, I wanted to pick something that, that nobody would necessarily go like, oh, well, you know, gee, this is a big action scene or something with lots of fun behind the scenes stories or something like that, but something that I thought meant something to the cinematic universe of James Bond and, and to what we all think of Sean Connery and his career as an actor. Yeah. So before we go, is there anything that uh, you're working on or you want to talk about or plug or, or anything, anything you can think of? Looking for an agent for my novel. So. Okay. <laughs> anybody, anybody wants to read my novel? Let me know. It's gotten great response. I just haven't been able to figure out how to get an agent to read it yet. So, <laughs> or a publisher. So okay, uh, all right. On that, but yeah, I'm I'm always working on a lot of things. None of them uh, particularly Bond related right now. So okay, very good. All right. Well, uh, John, you want to take us out of here? Yeah. Uh, well, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at 007 by Seven Podcast. Or uh, come over to our Patreon page at uh, patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Check out more content. Some of it Bond, some of it other talking about other movies. So, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see you over there. And thanks again, John Cork, for taking the time to talk to us. We'll Absolutely. See you down the line. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you.